Lord, as we look in your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would help us apply the things that you've spoken. Help us to hear your voice to us and help us to respond in a way that honors you and means life to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Start uh, teaching this morning by asking you a couple questions. If someone that you knew hated you, you knew they hated you, and they told you in one fashion or another to pick up a stony bag, heft it up on your back, and carry it around the rest of your life, would you do it? Would you do it? Or if someone that you knew loved you in some moment of anger or frustration said the same thing, Pick that bag of rocks up, carry it around that massive weight on your back the rest of your life, morning, noon, and night. Would you do it? Or if someone you knew that hated you put a glass of poison in front of you, and you knew that drinking this poison meant cancer and sickness and eventually death, would you pick up that glass when your enemy told you to and drink it? Or if someone you knew that you knew loved you, in one of those moments of just being out of it or angry or frustrated or whatever, said the same thing. Pick up that glass of poison and drink it. Would you do it? Would you do it? Just think about that as we start this morning. Last week we started that five-part series called Life on the Rock, and we looked at Matthew 7. And we were talking about Jesus said in that context that a person who heard his words and did them was like a wise or prudent man who was building a house, who built his house on a rock. And then when the storms of life came, as they do, it hit that house, but because its foundation was secure, it was good to go. That life was good to go, hearing his words and doing them. And we said that was probably at least a twofold issue. One, it meant that the first thing a person does to hear his word and keep them or do them is to come to him for salvation. It meant to entrust ourselves to his provision for our sin, to be restored to the Father and to his fellowship through Jesus' offer of salvation, through his death and resurrection. So that the beginning of building life on the rock was hearing his word related to repentance toward sin and faith in Christ. The rock's exposed for us to build on at that point. We have a relationship with God. We have a place to start. But then day to day it meant that we were in his word, listening to what he had to say, and then doing it. And that was continuing day by day to build a house on the rock so that no matter what comes, that foundation and that structure will stand the test of time and eternity. So we're one week into this series, so let me just ask you, you don't have to answer, raise your hand. How's it going? Are you meeting with the Lord every day? Are you in his word each day? Are you meditating on what he says, taking it to heart, and doing it? How's your structure look this week? What's the foundation look like? What will it look like this week? Part two, having talked about the foundation, coming to Christ for salvation, beginning to build on that through obedience, part two we're going to look at this morning is the subject of forgiveness. And I would just briefly tell you the things that I'm sharing with you in this five-part series come from a process of meeting with people over time in which Common reasons are quite obvious for why their foundation and why their life is the wreck and the mess it is. Most of the time, 
we are building on sand and our structure's falling down, but we're scratching our head because we don't understand why. But it, for others, generally, and certainly comparing our life to God's word, it becomes quite evident. And there are some very basic things in the scripture in which if you're out of line on these very basic things, you're out of line with God. You're not in right fellowship with him. You're not building on a rock. You're building on sand. And so this is a process of working back from dealing with people who, whose lives are a wreck and they say, how did I get here? You work back and you say, have we covered these significant major foundation issues? If you haven't, don't expect things to get better. They won't. They can't. They can't. Forgiveness is a huge issue in this whole life-building process. For anyone, for everyone, it's a huge issue. We are this morning... uh, I know I'm in trouble if I have seven pages of notes. I had seven pages the last time. It took me an hour. This, This won't. I've gone through this, so I know I can get through it in 30 minutes, 35 minutes. But this is such a big topic. My seven pages are actually a refined process of what I would go into. I mean, we could spend two or three weeks just on this. And I'm going to go through two or three brief passages, one major story, but there's a whole lot in the New Testament about forgiveness. It is such a huge foundation issue that if you don't get this, I guarantee you're carrying stones and you're drinking poison, and the outcome is absolutely obvious. And it's inevitable that in a world filled with sinners like you and me, that you're going to be sinned against. People you love and people who don't love you are going to sin against you by what they do and what they say, by what they don't do and what they don't say, by omission and commission. Someone will take what's yours that wasn't theirs to take or someone will give away what's yours that wasn't theirs to give. Someone will intentionally curse you or harm you or someone will inadvertently do it. It's it's absolutely a given. In this life, you will be sinned against and not once or twice, probably every day of your life. This raises a huge question. What do I do when this happens? What do I do when someone intentionally or unintentionally harms me, overlooks me, sins against me, or I think they've sinned against me. How do I respond when someone sins against me? This becomes a huge, huge question. If you've already started on the foundation of the rock, having come to Christ for salvation, his command to you as a believer is absolutely clear and imperative, and it is that you are required to forgive any and all who sin against you. There's no leeway on this. The call is clear. It is to forgive. It's to forgive. You're called to it and you're commanded. Before we go through the scriptures, let me give you the definitions for forgiveness. I think this is helpful. The Greek used in the New Testament for forgiveness means to walk away or to go away. So just think, someone sins against you, just think of it as a rock. To forgive them means to walk away from the rock. It means to go away from it. You don't stand there and hold on to it. You don't stand there and dwell on it. You walk away from it. You get away. You distance yourself from the injury. That's forgiveness. In English, in Webster's, listen to his definitions. Forgiveness is to give up resentment against or the desire to punish. To stop being angry with or to pardon. 
to give up all claims to punish or exact a penalty for an offense, to overlook, to cancel or remit, as in a debt, a fine, or a penalty. Synonyms are pardon, absolve, remit, cancel, and release. We are called to forgiveness, to walk away from the injury or the insult. We're called to walk away from the desire we have to exact a penalty. We're called on to walk away from the desire to retaliate, to take our own form of justice or vengeance. This is not our natural inclination, as we all know. Our natural inclination is to take things into our own hands and exact our form of revenge. This goes on in the Middle East every day, by the way. There are two good reasons to forgive. The first is that, as a Christian, you're commanded to. The second is because forgiveness means freedom for you. This is typical of most of God's commands. God is not a heavenly killjoy. When God tells you to do something, it's because it's not only right, it not only honors Him, it's good for you. His commands to us are life. So when you obey Him, step one, you get step two, you get life. Related to the commands, listen to this. In Mark 11, verse 25, Jesus said, Whenever you stand praying, you're in front of God praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, that sounds pretty inclusive, anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. Now here's the picture, remember this. You and I are sinners. If you and I are standing before God, that must mean that we already have some form of forgiveness, right? You can't stand before a holy, righteous God otherwise. Here I am standing before God. It means that I have already experienced some sort of forgiveness. And he says, in effect, do not bother coming to me to seek my help, to get close and cuddly, to tell me every little thing. When your presence with me means I've forgiven you, don't come here if you're not willing to turn around and forgive everyone, everything. Now, Just to avoid confusion, this is not a text on salvation. This is a text on fellowship and relationship. Absolutely. So even if your life is built on the foundation of salvation, and now you want to go before God, Jesus says, when you stand praying, you forgive if you have anything against anyone. This is a clear, clear command. If we refuse to forgive others, we erect a wall or an impediment between ourselves and our fellowship with God. There's a wall, and we're putting it up. We're called to forgive. And if we want to seek His presence and His favor and His help, He requires, since He's already forgiven us, that we turn around and forgive others. If we disobey God, if we disobey Jesus' words in this respect, you are absolutely building your life on sand and your life, your structure is going to fall down. It's going to fall apart. 
you're picking up the rocks and you're drinking the poison. Can't be otherwise. If you want, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 18, which is the story we're going to look at. This is perhaps the most important story in the Gospels about forgiveness. And it's because it absolutely illustrates the point Jesus made in Mark 11. The context for this is Jesus has just told them, if your brother sins, go and reprove him. And if he listens to you, great. Your fellowship is restored. If he doesn't listen, take two or three to confirm the facts, call him to repentance. If he repents, great, your fellowship is restored. If he won't listen to you, tell the church. If he won't listen to the church, let him be as an outsider or a Gentile to you. This is a process that's meant to restore fellowship, not get rid of it. The thought all along is that you're calling someone to repentance to keep them in fellowship. In that context, Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, Lord, verse 21, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Now, Peter thinks he's kind of reaching high when he says this. He wants to qualify what Jesus is telling him. Okay, Lord, somebody sins. They sin against me. And I'm supposed to go and talk to them about it and, and call them back to fellowship and restoration. How many times should I be willing to do this with my brother? seven times? Now, I think Peter, his thought is, seven is a number of completion. Seven's a big number, really, towards forgiving somebody else who's doing you wrong, right? So he's reaching high. He's aiming high, but not high enough. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 70 times seven. By the way, this does not mean 490 times. This means as often as as it takes, and you don't keep count. Every time it's required, you forgive. There's no limit on it. There's no number that you've hit, and then it's over. As often as it happens, that's how often you are called to forgive. And listen to his illustration. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Thank you. When he began to settle them, there was brought to him one who owned him, who, excuse me, <clears throat> who owed him ten thousand talents. Now, you know, most of us read talent, we think some natural ability. This is a weight, and it's a measure that money, finance, were weighed out in. Remember, in the ancient world, it was weights and measures that counted, not denominations. A talent. This would be like saying ten thousand talents. This is like ten billion dollars. This amount. This is huger than the ransom for a country. So when you read this, you need to think this is an amount that could never be repaid. This is an insurmountable amount. So here comes this poor guy. He owes $10 billion. He owes an amount he can never pay. He knows it, and the king knows it. Since he did not have the means to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and with him his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Now, he's desperate, and the truth is he can't pay. But he's desperate. He's looking for mercy. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. He forgave an insurmountable amount, an unpayable debt, was paid, was covered, was forgiven. 
Well, that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarii was a day's wage. A hundred denarii, hundred days' wages. I just want you to know, at one level, say this is a little less than half a year's wages, depending on what you make. This is twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars. This is a chunk of change. It's not insignificant. However, compared to ten billion, it's nothing. It's insignificant, absolutely insignificant. So he's owed a hundred denarii. He seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe me. His fellow slave fell down, began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Sounds familiar. He, unlike the king, was unwilling. He went and he threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. You asked. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? His Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. God is the king in the story. And you and I are the wretched slave that owe $10 billion. The accumulation, if you will, of our lifetime of sins is a debt we could never pay. Psalm 49, just talking about human humanity and human possibility, says, No man can by any means redeem his brother. You and I can't redeem ourselves, pay the debt. We can't pay anyone else's debt. We are out of luck. We come up short. And God looks at the lifetime of your sins and mine in Christ and says, I'll forgive your $10 billion debt. I'll forgive every evil, wicked thought you've ever had, every evil, wicked word you've ever spoken, every evil, wicked deed you've ever committed. I'm going to blanket. I'm going to cover it all. That's the king in the story. You and I are that slave. We've been forgiven a debt that could never be repaid. Our call then is to turn to our fellow slave and forgive them the not insignificant, but insignificant compared to what God has done for us. We're forgiving them their debt. Jesus says, if the king forgave you the $10 billion debt, should you have not turned around and forgiven the $10,000 debt? Should you have not given what you were given? You know, in the end, God is the only person in the universe who has never sinned, not talking about angels, but humanity, a person in that sense. God is the only one who could not forgive someone else and be absolutely just in the doing. He's also the only one who can exact absolute justice 
and vengeance because he's not tainted with sin as you and I are. When you and I sin, even when we sin against another person, the sin is always first and foremost against God himself. When David committed adultery and murder, in Psalm 51, he said, Against you, God, I have sinned. It's not that he hadn't harmed Uriah, but he understood that his sin was first and foremost against God himself. And your sin and mine is first and foremost always against God. And if God is the one who is most sinned against, and he's the one who comes in and says, I will pardon all your sins, Jesus says, Who are you or I to be unwilling to forgive someone else? We have no claim on vengeance. We have no claim on justice. If we have been forgiven, we are called to forgive. It also makes sense that God commands this because as his children, remember he's reproducing his life in us. He's reproducing his life in us. If our father is one who forgives, he is the ultimate forgiver. He calls on us to be like himself. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Just as the king forgave the slave, the slave forgives his other slave. You forgive each other as God in Christ forgave you. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Remember that the forgiveness or the pardon that you and I enjoy, it cost God his son. When you and I show an unwillingness to forgive another, we are insulting Jesus' death on the cross. It is a slap in God's face who gave his son to die and cover your sins and mine for us to accept the payment for ours and turn around and refuse it to someone else. We devalue God. We devalue the gift of his son. We devalue Christ's death and resurrection. When we forgive, we take on the character of our Savior and of our Father. And all we're doing is we're taking what was given us and we're turning around and giving that same thing, forgiveness, to someone else. We're only giving what we were given. We're called to it and we're commanded to it. And when we forgive, we're building on a rock foundation. We're making a structure that's going to stand the tests of time and eternity. The second part of that, besides being commanded to, is the fact that it's good for us and that forgiving others frees us, frees us. Let me ask you a couple questions. All of us have no doubt had times when we are so stinking mad and angry with someone else, what they did to us. All we're doing is thinking about getting even. The anger, it's like one of those cloud heads in the summer. It's just, it's growing and it's getting bigger and bigger and our thunder and lightning is ready to come out and we're ready to strike. And when you're feeling that bitterness and that anger and that sense of uh, vengeance, do you feel filled with the fruits of the Spirit? Do you feel love and joy and peace? 
you know, it's easy to ask yourself, am I walking with the Spirit? Is His fruit evident in your life at the moment? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Is that going on when you're full of your wrath and your desire for revenge and unforgiveness? Do you interact with others in love as you're commanded to in Ephesians 4 when you're harboring that stone of hurt and anger and unforgiveness? When you're clinging to unforgiveness, do you feel personally free? You're free to go on and get on with life? In John 8, this is a passage bigger than forgiveness, but apply this passage in John 8 to forgiveness. John 8, 31, Jesus said, just like Matthew 7, sounds very similar, if you abide, live, remain in my word, then you're truly disciples or followers of mine. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We're applying that to forgiveness. They answered, we're Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. When you and I hold unforgiveness against another, we are in sin. And we are slaves of that sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains because the son is free, you see. If therefore the son shall make you free, you'll be free indeed. Just related to the sin of unforgiveness, when you and I hold unforgiveness, we're in sin and we're enslaved. We're enslaved to the hurt and the unforgiveness. Instead of walking away from that stone or that poison, we're clutching it. We lose. We lose. Have you ever known anyone who was sinned against, say, for instance, by a parent who has died, isn't even around, and that person is still carrying bitterness and anger and resentment, and their own life is chewed up from within by a person who doesn't even live on the earth? Or how about this? Someone you know that hates you, does you wrong, and you choose You're going to show them. You're not going to forgive them. Who's the loser? You are. Your unforgiveness does not harm them in the least. It harms you. It is the stony weight on your back. It is the bitter poison in your stomach. You're the one who's hurt by unforgiveness. It does not hurt the person you want vengeance against. It hurts you. Your freedom and mine related to injuries against us does not come from getting the other person. The freedom comes from forgiving them. Your freedom comes from forgiveness. Forgiveness. One of the things when we think about this and say this, no matter what someone has done against us or another person we say we're called to forgive is, we say, well, it's not fair. Or what about justice? You know, the truth is, God is absolutely just. There's nothing done in time that God won't treat in a just manner in time or eternity. You can count on it. He is constrained by his character to be just. If the person sins against you, is an unbeliever, is not a Christian, reject Christ to the day of their death and they die, they'll pay for their sins against you and against everyone else for eternity, like the slave in the story. It'll never be paid, and they'll always suffer God's punishment 
God's wrath against sin forever. Now I'll confess to you, this does not make me feel any better. When I think about even the Hitlers and the Stalins and the worst people you can think of, I'll tell you, I still couldn't pray that they'd go to hell forever. And not because I'm a good guy, but because when I think about a Christless eternity, I wouldn't wish that on anyone, no matter what they'd done. But God is just, and if that person who sins against you or I dies rejecting Christ, God's justice will be done, and they will pay for their sin against you and others and God forever. That won't make me feel any better, and it won't make you feel any better in eternity, but God's justice will be done. If the person who sins against you is a Christian, they've been accepted in the Beloved, and they've still sinned against you, they answer to their dad. They're the servant in Mark 11 also. You know what? If they don't make things right with you, they're building up a wall between their father and themselves. They don't, no one gets away scot-free. If you sin, you die. Romans 8 says, if you sin, you die. And Christians, when we sin, we experience the death that sin always brings. There's no getting around that. In our experience, we experience death and loss. And a Christian who sins against a Christian, the sinning party, they have an issue between their father and them. Christ has died for their sins, and we still forgive them. God still takes it up with them. And even if that Christian goes through all their life never making it right to us, they're going to suffer loss of reward in heaven. God's still going to Bring them before the judgment seat of Christ. And the sins done against you and me, it's going to be, and the sins we've done against others that we haven't made right, which we'll talk about later, next week, it's going to be wood and hay, and it's going to burn up in front of our eyes and their eyes. No one gets away with sin. In time or eternity, no one gets away. God's justice will be done. In the end, of course, you and I are banking on our sins being covered by Jesus' blood. And in the end, that's, that's God's great justice, isn't it? That's the only reason that you and I can be forgiven at all is because God is absolutely just and has covered our sins by the life of an innocent party, one without sin, his own son. So, regardless of who sins against you, Christian or non-Christian, parent, child, remember, you've got to apply this to every sphere of your life. Kids who are sinned against by their parents. Parents who are sinned against by their children. Spouses sinned against by each other. Enemies, friends, Christians, non-Christians, co-workers. Mark 11, anyone, anything. Regardless of who the person is or what kind of relationship that is, your freedom and mine is tied to forgiving them and leaving God to take up the issue of justice or vengeance, or whatever. We're called to forgive. In the forgiveness, we obey His command, and we're free of the, of the ongoing hurt that unforgiveness brings. We're free of the weight, and we're free of the poison when we forgive. Leave justice in God's hands. I want to close with a story, one of those great spiritual stories uh, that all of you didn't read in your Bible, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, by Roald Dahl, who's one of our family's favorite authors. But in this story, it's a great movie if you ever get a chance to see it, in this story, Charlie Bucket, 
is a poor boy of the streets in England. He's from a poor, insignificant family. His mom washes laundry to provide for he and his two sets of grandparents who are invalids who live their life in one great big bed. And Charlie Bucket is the last child to find a golden ticket in a Willy Wonka chocolate bar. And the reward is these kids get to come in and have a tour of Willy Wonka's secret chocolate factory. There's only, I think there's, I don't remember, maybe there's seven. But anyway, this was the special place that no one gets to go. Thanks, Mark 5. No one gets to go, but he's got a golden ticket. And so one day, he and the other children and their parents, and Grandpa Joe gets out of bed for the occasion and goes with Charlie, they go to the gates of the chocolate factory. And Willy Wonka himself, who hasn't been seen in years, comes out and brings them in. And in the course of the tour, they all do something they're not supposed to do. And uh, the little fat German boy gets sucked up in a tube. And, and one little girl swells up as big as a blueberry. And she's rolled to the pressing area. And Mike TV is shrunk to the size of an ant or something. And one little Veruca, she's a bad egg. And she gets dumped into the bad egg bin. But anyway, they go through his wonderful plant. And they get to the end. And Charlie and Grandpa Joe are the last two left. And the tour is over. And Willy Wonka says, hey, it's been nice seeing you. And... and Sorry, I can't see you the door. See you later. They feel, oh, what, what happened? What happened? So Grandpa Joe goes up to Willy Wonka and says, well, hey, what about Charlie's lifetime supply of chocolate? And Willy Wonka says, well, he doesn't get it. What do you mean? Willy Wonka, he's getting angry. He runs to his half vault and he opens up the contract and shows them that they disobeyed too. They broke an order. And they stole fizzy lifting drink. And Willy Wonka is just become irate. And he's yelling and he's screaming that Charlie Bucket gets nothing. Nothing. Grandpa Joe is incensed with anger. And he says, you're a crook and a cheat and a swindler. That's what you are. How can you do such a thing like this? Build up a little boy's hopes and smash all his dreams to pieces. You're an inhuman monster. Then quietly to Charlie, he says, I'll get even with him if it's the last thing I ever do. Vengeance, unforgiveness, bitterness, and anger. And they start to walk out of the office. Charlie Bucket stops at the door, and it's clear he's wrestling in his own mind. Does he take up Grandpa Joe's example? We'll get even with that guy if it's the last thing we do. You need to understand in the story, a guy named Slugworth has told Charlie Bucket and each of the other children that they will receive in this candy factory an everlasting gobstopper. This is a secret candy confection that you can suck forever and it never wears out. And our little friend Charlie has been led to believe that Willy Wonka's future rests on the everlasting gobstopper. And that if he just takes it out with Grandpa Joe and gives it to the enemy Slugworth, he can ruin Willy Wonka forever. He can get his pound of flesh. He can exact revenge, which is what Grandpa Joe is saying. And instead, he turns quietly and he walks over to Willy Wonka's desk and he takes out the everlasting gobstopper and he lays it on the desk. And he walks out. And Willy Wonka turns and says quietly, so shines a good deed in a weary world.
And then more loudly, he says, Charlie, you've won, you've won. I knew you could do it. I knew you would. Charlie says, what do you mean? The chocolate? Yes, the chocolate, but that's just the beginning. And he says, I've got so much time and so little to do. Strike that. Reverse it. They walk down the hall and they get in the great glass elevator. And he tells them, I've been everywhere in this elevator except one place. And we're going through the roof. And as they're in the elevator, Willy Wonka says to Charlie, how did you like the factory? Charlie says, it's the most wonderful place in the world. He says, I'm very pleased to hear you say that because I'm giving it to you. Who can I trust to run the factory when I leave and take care of the Oompa Loompas for me? Not a grown-up. A grown-up would want to do everything his own way, not mine. That's why I decided a long time ago that I had to find a child, a very honest, loving child. We could say a forgiving child to whom I can tell all my most precious candy-making secrets. And he closes by saying, don't forget what happened to the man who got everything he always wanted. He lived happily ever after. Charlie Bucket gave up the bitterness of anger and wrath and vengeance, and he got chocolate. And he got Willy Wonka's kingdom, if you will, his entire chocolate-making factory. He passed the test. It was all a test, by the way. The whole thing was a test to find somebody he could bring in and, and bring into his secret councils and share his secrets with. That was the reason for the whole thing. He wanted someone to pass so that he could bring them in and give them his kingdom. He displayed the character of the one who wanted to bring him into his most intimate councils. Charlie refused the stony weight of unforgiveness and wrath. And he got the robes of authority and freedom and ownership. Charlie refused to drink the poison of vengeance and he got the sweet confections of life instead. If you and I are in the habit of holding unforgiveness, we are carrying the stony pack on our back and we are drinking the deadly poison and we are building our life on sand and we will fall in time and before the judgment seat of Christ. And when we forgive others, as we're commanded to, and it brings freedom to us, we're displaying the character of Christ, who said from the cross, while paying for your sins and mine, Father, forgive them. When you forgive, when I forgive, we're freeing ourselves from sin and death. We're walking away from the hurt. We're walking in the freedom that Jesus died to give us. And we're living life on the rock. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just struck that you're the only one in the universe that could rightly hold a grudge and be unforgiving. And you're the only one who could have provided totally, fully for our forgiveness, and you did. Lord, help us not be mean-spirited, selfish children trying to return tit for tat, God, help us bear the image of your Son who from the cross, while paying for our sins, cried out to you of those who were crucifying him and mocking him. Father, forgive them. Lord, you're absolutely perfect in all your ways and in all your character. 
you accomplish vengeance and justice perfectly, just as you provided forgiveness perfectly. Lord, help us to give to others what you've given to us, forgiveness, at the great cost of yourself and your son. Help us to leave justice and wrath and vengeance with you. In Jesus' name, amen.